The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Uh, if you would, turn with me to Psalm 22, and we're going to be in verses 22 through 31 today. So we're finishing Psalm 22 today, and uh, also this round of the book of Psalms. Uh, you may have noticed we kind of started in, in the middle of the teens here, and that's because we've been in the book of Psalms multiple times uh, throughout our existence as a church, and so we just kind of keep working through it, come back, and so we'll do that. We'll be back to the Psalms in a year or Two, just depending on how the Lord leads. Uh, this is our third week in Psalm 22, and I can genuinely say that my appreciation for this psalm has grown exponentially as we've studied it together. It's always been a special one. It's always been meaningful, but man, there is gold in these hills. Uh, and as we've said previously, this is one of the clearest examples of poetic prophecy in the Psalms as it portrays in painstaking detail what reads very much like the inner reflections and prayers of Jesus as he endured the excruciating experience of crucifixion, laying down his life as the perfect and final sacrifice to atone for the sins of humanity. It's very much what it seems to be that we're reading here. And this Psalm, it began with the familiar phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are words which Jesus spoke as the ordeal of the cross began. The Spirit then moves David to write with prophetic foresight about the pain and the shame and the thirst of our Savior as he hung and bled and suffered the punishment for sin in our place. But then there is a distinct pivot, and that's where we pick up in verse 22. And I would say that the pivot really begins in the second half of verse 21. So, you know, I may be too bold in saying this, but I would maybe humbly suggest to our ancestors in the faith, roughly in the 1500s when they added the chapters and verses, which I'm very thankful for. It helps me remember where I'm going. Amen. I would humbly suggest maybe the second half of 21 would have fit better as the first half of 22, but I digress. It wasn't, I didn't do the hard job of putting chapters and verses in the scriptures, so I'm thankful someone did. Uh, so we're going to be reading these 10 verses. We'll start second half of 21, read through 31. Uh, we're going to do that in just a minute, but I want to read you something else first. I'm going to ask you to put a pin in it mentally, and uh, after we work through these verses, I, I, I see this way where it's really going to all kind of tie together quite beautifully, and I'm, I'm excited to share it with you. Um, as many of you are already aware, uh, today is Palm Sunday, okay? So that commonly uh, kicks off what is referred to as Holy Week, and Palm Sunday being the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey uh, to the praise of crowds, which included the waving of, of palm branches, according to the book of John. So that's where we get the name, uh, Palm Sunday. And so let me read you this. I'm not going to read you John's account of the thing. Right before I read that, I'm going to take the great risk of trying to raise this. Who's praying for me and who's praying against me? Haha, <laughs> it'd be funny if it dropped. I love this church. I know you too. All right, uh, let me read this to you. This is, this is not John's account. This is uh, Dr. Luke's account. Luke 19, 35 through 38, and, and they brought it to Jesus, talking about the, the colt, and they threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. Now as he was going, they were spreading their cloaks on the road. And as soon as he was approaching, near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, blessed is the king the one who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. All right, so stick a mental pin in that right there. Let's read these 10 verses of Psalm 22 together, and it's all going to come back around, okay? As I said, uh, first 
or second half of, of 21 through 31. He says, you answer me. I will tell your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. Praise God for his word. Amen. Now, I'm going to start actually with verse 31. And that's in order to establish an important premise about what we just read. And that's going to be able to set us up to be able to work through the rest and understand what's going on. Now, some of what we just read, it points, it's, it points to things that are, are clearly post-crucifixion and even post-resurrection realities. Do you know what I mean when I say that? We're talking about, what we're seeing described here are, are things that, it doesn't seem like this is happening while the cross is happening. This is after the fact things that are being pointed to, right? Okay, that's important. But there is a good reason to see this that we're reading today still as the inner thoughts and prayers of Jesus as he was still enduring the crucifixion. And what do I mean? Well, we have a record of the last things Jesus spoke on the cross. Let me read you these. This is Luke 23, verse 46. And Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands... I entrust my spirit. And having said this, he died. And then in John 19.30, we see John record, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, that could seem a bit confusing, but most people think that these two phrases were probably said together. Something like, It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, or vice versa. And maybe John only heard the first part or focused in on it, or or Luke, you know, for some reason. But the real point here that I'm trying to get at, what I want to show us is, there is a seismic shift from Christ's first words to his last words upon the cross. Because he started with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He ends with, it is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. That's a big shift. It's a big shift. Now, we see into your hands I commit my spirit in Psalm 31.5. Okay? And here's what I want to show you. That Christ, his, his first words was last upon the cross. There's this big shift. But, but both the first and the last, they were quotes from the Psalms. Now, we've been in Psalm 22, so we know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? comes from Psalm 22.1. If you look at Psalm 31.5, you'll see into your hands I commit my spirit. And though it is translated, uh, he has done it, I'm talking about verse 31 here in, in Psalm 22, or the NASB translates it, um, that he has performed it, okay? This phrase in Hebrew can easily be translated, it is finished. So here's what I'm trying to say. Here's part of the premise I'm giving you. We know from the accounts of the Gospels, the last words of Jesus, we know clearly the Psalms were on Jesus' mind as he hung upon the cross. That premise begins clearly at the outset of Psalm 22 as he quotes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God knew what he was doing. God knew when he inspired David by the Spirit to write these things a thousand years before the crucifixion of Christ, roughly. And he knew that Jesus would say these things from the cross, referring back to the scripture, the prophecies 
that had been written about him. And, and what does that tell us? Well, this, this psalm is capped off with some of the last words of Jesus, and it leads us to read it in such a way as to think that, yes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes, the strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. Yes, I'm like a dried pot shirt. Yes, they, they pierce my hands and feet. These are, the, these are the prayers, these are the contemplations of our Savior upon the cross. But somehow, amazingly, so are these. Somehow, amazingly, we also have the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations <laughs> as among these contemplations of the master. What else do we see? That from you comes my praise in the great assembly. That worship is filling the mind and the heart of Christ the King, even as he hangs upon the cross. This shows us the words of Christ on the cross. They were not haphazard at all. But he was in total control the entire time, praying and speaking scripture and showing himself to be the fulfillment of it. Amen. That's amazing. So this means still hanging, bleeding, and dying to save us. Jesus was silently praying what we read today. And that really helps us to see this in a different light. And it also helps us to apply it. Verses 22 through 24 Let's look at those again. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. and Stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. First, we see here in this pivot, this shift, we see the glorious truth that somehow some people are going to be raised to the status of brethren to Jesus. It's not only here that we see that. Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be, Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. How can God do this? By, by what mechanism can humans go from enemies of God to being raised up beyond the level of loyal subjects to sons and daughters. Friends, how often have you let your heart and mind wander to the wonder of the fact that God didn't stop at simply granting us access to be loyal subjects of him as a king. To take us as enemies and bring us into his kingdom at all, even to make us just loyal subjects, would be incredibly gracious but he refuses to stop there. He keeps pulling. He keeps drawing us into relationship far beyond that of a king to his subjects to that of a father to his children. How? How can he do that? John 1, 11 and 12, he came to his own and his own people did not accept him, but as many as received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. The mechanism by which God took us from enemies and rebels to sons and daughters is faith in the finished work and the good name of Christ, our Savior. It's by grace through faith. Because if, if the mechanism was going to be, okay, show that you're worthy to go from my enemy to my son or my daughter, Oh, what could we have done other than melt into a puddle of discouragement? Because we cannot undo our work as enemies. We cannot undo our work as rebels. There's not enough time in eternity. Not to make up for transgressing against a God this holy, this good, this perfect. You never get it done. There had to be some other mechanism. There had to be some way that God somehow could wipe the slate clean and declare by his power and by his will that we are granted the right to be sons and daughters. How could he do it? How could he do it and be just? Because the punishment, because the being cast away that we had earned for ourselves and deserved, Jesus took. He said, if we'll trust him, 
He'll count it to us as righteousness. If you'll trust him, if you'll trust my son, if you'll understand your great need for him and submit to him as savior, then I'll let you wear his robes. Those robes of righteousness needed to be granted access to the throne room of a God who dwells in unapproachable light. Amen. We see our first glorious glimpse of this monumental shift right after Jesus rises from the grave. Listen carefully, friends. This is John 20. This is where Mary at first thinks she sees the gardener, you remember, after the resurrection. Listen to the words of Christ. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers... Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. You see, part of the answer to why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was because it was needed in order for his God to become our God, for his Father to become our Father. It was going to have to be a price paid for sin. There was going to have to be the application of grace and mercy through faith. He hasn't been out of the tomb that long. We're still in the garden where the tomb resides. Mary thought she ran into the gardener and already Jesus is declaring the good news. Go tell my brothers. (laughs) No longer servants, not even just friends. My brothers. This is the king of glory. This is the eternal one. The son of God. Calling mere men his brothers. And just in case you thought it was a slip of the tongue, just in case you thought he just maybe was still a little shaky from the ordeal of three days in the tomb, he goes on to make sure you clearly understand, I'm going to my father and to your father. He's your father. Wow. And so the question is, who should praise? This is the encouragement we see in the psalm, isn't it? I'll tell you, I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. And so who should praise in light of this nearly inconceivable amount of grace and favor that has been poured out? Who should praise? Well, for sure, the physical descendants of Israel, of course they should. And and we know the original 12 disciples were all of this physical lineage coming from the family of Abraham, the one who originally was called out to trust God by faith and had it credited to him as righteousness, right? And so all the disciples, they were of this physical lineage, but the good news and the reasons for worship extend to all people just as was promised to Abraham because that was never just the plan to save Israel. Israel was a vehicle God used in a much larger, grander plan of redemption for the world. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And this is not, you know, of course the, the disciples, they hadn't yet put it together and, and, and we have the benefit of hindsight, but when, when you have the benefit of hindsight, it just, it almost, it looks so clear, it looks so obvious because if you go back to Genesis 22 verse 18 and you remember the promise of God to Abraham originally, he said, in your seed, singular, and Paul took the time to, I don't have time to pull apart that argument, it's not seeds, he's not talking about The nation of Israel overall is your seed, through your seed, what? What will happen? All the nations of the earth shall be blessed. All of the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Blessed because, saying blessed and because, quickly together, is a little bit of a tongue twister. So there you go. They will be blessed because what? You've obeyed my voice in faith. It's not the only place we see this language of seed because we can go all the way back, friends, to the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. We can go all the way back to Genesis 3 when God laid out the consequences of sin but also the great hope that one day a seed was coming of the woman that was going to crush the head of the serpent. Boy, look at all that consistency. Look at that crimson thread running from front to back. There's a sense in which, friends, when we think about this, and think about how many times Jesus talked about the kingdom of God being, how many farmer analogies were there? How many times was Jesus talking about seed? It was all the time, wasn't it? There is a sense in which, friends, think about this. Let this rest on you, that the Messiah dying and being laid in the earth was like a head of grain dying and falling to the earth. 
Seeds were planted that would become a harvest for God of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. So I started this whole little treatise right here with a question. Who should praise in light of what we're reading? Who should praise in light of the finished work of Christ, the fulfilled promises of God? Who should praise all the nations, everybody, everybody to whom this good news reaches their ears and their hearts? Amen. I don't know if I'm convinced. Okay, well, think about this. Galatians 3, 7 through 9, therefore recognize that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It's those who are of faith that are the sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Oh man, I thought the gospel was a New Testament thing. Oh no, friends, no. The gospel was preached to Abraham beforehand in that very statement, all the nations will be blessed in you. How could that possibly be? Boy, the Lord's about to do something wild, isn't he? And he did. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Hallelujah. And and why are we worshiping? We answered who should worship, but why? Why are we worshiping, friends? It's for all the truths that these verses bring into view. Everything about us going from rebels to sons and daughters, all of that. But it's also the truth that even though Jesus may have looked fully forsaken of God on the cross, it was a necessary and temporary pouring out of God's wrath on Jesus so his grace could be poured out on us. And that says so much. I'm, there's more to say about it, and it'll, when, we, when we thread this needle all the way at the end, I'm going to show it to you. But let's, let's work through these scriptures. There's more to see here. Because what I'm telling you is, somehow my Savior, hands and feet pierced, dried up like a potsherd, heart melted like wax, calling out to God, feeling the the, the, the viciousness of the mocking, the dogs, the strong bulls of Bashan around him, the roaring of, of the lions. This, this is a description of what he's experiencing. And yet, there's this pivot. All that's true. This is hard. This is real. This is incredible suffering. And yet, my king is able to turn a, a joyous gaze towards what's to come. Verses 25 through 31, we see Jesus rejoicing in the eternal implications of his soon-to-be-finished work. I know we just read it, but friends, please, just allow me to read it again. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will be remembered will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will worship before you. Friends, when the scriptures tell you that Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him, is it starting to make sense to you? Come on, man. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. Some translations there will say a seed will serve him. There's a seed again. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come, will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. That he has performed it. I know, and I'm going to read these again, but I don't care. It's so good. 25, okay? So let's just work through it piece by piece. I'm telling you, my master, your master, turned his, his gaze, the contemplations of his heart and mind in the midst of the crucifixion was able to turn his gaze away from his own suffering towards future glory, towards the eternal implications of what he was there for that day at Calvary. You starting to pick up on where this application might be going? Come on. I know some of you are. If you, I'll get you there. Don't worry. We're going to go together. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. In the great assembly, I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. Friends, this calls to our attention, our remembrance. It's a forward-looking view. When he talks about this great assembly, think of, think of Revelation. Think of the final vision of the, the Apostle John. Think of what we see there. That people, again, from all corners of the world, 
standing at the throne, rightly declaring the praise and glory of God our King. He's thinking about it. See, my, my, my King is the eternal one, right? He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's not bound by time. We have to experience this thing as it unrolls. Oh, but he's already seen the great assembly. Hallelujah. I struggle keeping it together thinking about that because I can't wait. But the mind of the Lord turns there. In verse 25, he's thinking about eternity with us, the great prize for his suffering. 26, thinking about what he's purchasing for us. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. You ever felt afflicted? You among them? You're going to eat and be satisfied. Amen. Eat what? All the bread of life. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. You hear an echo of eternal life in that, friends? You hear an echo of what happens when you eat and satisfied by the bread of life? Let your heart live forever. Oh, that's a miracle. That's something you shouldn't get to do. Woo! I don't care if you're going to get excited today. I'm going to be. I am. So you can come or not, but I'm already there. 27 through 29. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. Think about that. All the families of the nations will worship before you. Christ on the cross rejoicing in the glory to come to the Father. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. This Brings to mind for me, I'm not the only one, but the the idea we see laid out in Philippians 2. Let me read this to you, starting in verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's what I'm seeing, the tie to that, okay? Because there's this distinction in the way we see who's being talked about here in this psalm, right? Because there's there's those that the kingdom of the Lord rules over the nations, the prosperous of the earth, they'll eat and worship, All those who go down to the dust will bow before him even. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Here's the truth of what we see in Philippians 2 because we also already read today in John, it is those who receive Christ. It is those who come to the humble acknowledgement of their great need for a savior. It is they who are made the children of God. And so that's not everybody. There are those that will choose to reject that. There are those who will go down to the dust and will not be able to keep their soul alive. But even they, there is going to be a point in history where everyone, either as a son or daughter or as an enemy, is going to bow their knee and declare Jesus Christ is Lord. Nobody's getting out of it. Everybody's going to acknowledge. Everybody's going to see. Part of our great mission, part of our existence, and the reason why God has us here in this time and place is to let as many people as possible know on that day, they can declare Christ is Lord. They can declare Jesus Christ is worthy of worship as a son or daughter. They don't have to do it in subjection to someone that they have decided is their enemy. They can do it in full love and faith of someone that they have received and has received them. But we see in that, there's there's hope in the sovereignty of God because many of us are tempted to vex about evil in the world seeming to run unchecked. Brokenness in the world that seems hard to square with a good and loving God. And here's the thing. Nobody's getting away with anything. The day will come. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. Christ is Lord. 
The difference is just going to be whose team are you on when you say it. But you're going to say it. You happy about that? I'm happy about it. Everybody. <laughs> Everybody. Hallelujah. Some as sons and daughters, but some as conquered enemies. But friends, people don't have to stay their enemy. The Lord is patient, willing that none should perish. Verses 30 and 31. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. You want to hear something cool? Don't get a big head, okay? That's not the point. But you and I, sitting here right now, are a part of this prophecy being fulfilled. That's pretty cool. Generations are going to come that have not yet been born. They're not only going to hear, but they're going to also declare all of these truths that were just laid out about the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God and the salvation of the Lord. Well, guess what? We're standing in that line, dear friends. Here we are, 2022. It's been a few generations. But the name of Christ is still being worshipped, isn't it? The people of God are still here, aren't they? Hallelujah. When he says that it comes to pass. That goes to his glory. I'm not going to feel good about myself because... In a sense, I'm, I'm a part of fulfilled prophecy. That just leads me to want to worship him more. It's another reason to give him glory. Can't believe he let me be in this thing. Can you? If you got to the point where you're starting to think maybe, yeah, you know, it makes sense that, that the Lord's got me in this deal. Make, run to the altar and repent. Something's gone wrong. Stay in awe. Stay overwhelmed with the simple fact that God would invite you. That God would raise you up to the status of a son or a daughter, a brother or a sister to Christ, his firstborn. When it comes to salvation, he's begotten of the Father. Let's not be confused. Christ is eternal. Amen. Don't get that twisted. Hallelujah. Now, I told you that there's a connection here to Palm Sunday, so I want to talk to you about this. There is a, I've never seen it this way before, and buddy, I'm excited to show you. There's, there's an incredibly powerful contrast between what we see happening here in the meditations and the prayers of our Savior upon the cross, what we see in this psalm, and what we see with Palm Sunday. Let me read again. I asked you to put a pin in it, but I know some of you maybe will need a refresher, and I probably do too. So let's read Luke 19, 35 through 38. We're looking for a contrast between, friends, what we just read about our Savior's situation and what we're seeing on Palm Sunday. And they brought it to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And now as he was going, they were spreading their cloaks on the road. And as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. They were praising God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the king, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That's all well and good. But here's my question, friends. Where were all these worshipers days later when Jesus was bleeding and dying for them? They were praising him in the streets, waving palm fronds for all the miracles they had seen. All that looked very good to them. It looked good to them. So they were willing to praise. They were willing to worship. They were willing to be visibly associated with this Messiah. When things seemed to turn a direction that they didn't like how it was going, or things seemed to turn away they weren't anticipating... We have no palm fronds at the base of the cross, do we? We have scattered disciples. We have no one there. We have Jesus in the first few verses of Psalm 22 declaring this sense of feeling forsaken. There's no one here to help me. And so what do we see? We see here Jesus, our master. It's like the, la the layers, 
it's not just that he's serving us by dying for us in our place, but he's even serving us in the way he is speaking and praying from the cross. As he's quoting the Psalms, as he's making clear yet again, I am the one you were looking for. It might not look like it right now. And as he's setting his affections and his mind and his heart on the eternal implications of what the cross means, he's, he's serving us the whole way through and he's, God knew in the writing of this psalm that we would be able to see these things, connect these things, and understand where our Savior was at even while he was enduring such agony. And even in that, he is serving us. Even in that, he is yet again giving us an example, not just how to serve an incredible sacrifice, but how to stand in faith even in the midst of great trial and suffering and agony. How to stand steadfast in the midst of of what looks like the greatest loss in all of recorded history to all of the casual observers. Jesus shows us here it is very possible and very profitable to worship in the midst of trials and affliction. Not only when things look good to us. And we see this principle throughout the scriptures. I would probably argue this is the most vibrant and applicable example that we're going to find, but it's not the only one. We have the Israelites crossing the Jordan and coming into to possess the land. They come to the walls of the great fortress city of Jericho, and what happens? Do they dig trenches and interrupt the supply lines and do the typical stuff you do to siege a city? Start building up artillery so you can start banging on the walls with whatever rocks you can hurl. Was that what happened? Or did God instruct them to take a different route? To march around and to praise the sovereign God of Israel loudly and the walls come down by the power of God, not by the might in the hand of man. It didn't look good, you understand, to come up to Jericho. It didn't look good to be a band of nomads just came out of 40 years of wandering to a well-established fortress city. The odds aren't good. All right, guys, here's what I want you to do. Worship me. And and look foolish while you're doing it. March around the thing. Lots of times. Blow those shofars real loud. Let them know you're down there. Let them laugh at you from up on top of the wall. Let them scorn your God. We're going to see. In 2 Chronicles 20, a similar situation. There's no walled city, but there's a great army besieging the people of God. King Jehoshaphat comes to the Lord looking for help, looking for an answer. And the Lord says to him, you're not going to fight this battle. I'm going to fight it for you. Here's what you do instead. They go out to the battle lines and who do they put out front? Archers? Who do they put out front? The cavalry? Who do they put out front? The guys that box the best? No, man, the choir. The choir goes out front. The ones with the singing voices, not me. I wouldn't have been in that crew. I'd have had to be in the back. They send the choir out. They begin to sing and lift praises to God. And the word of God says, the Lord set ambushes among them. They took themselves out. It didn't look good. There was no way, man, looking at this thing naturally, this was going to be okay. They worshiped in the midst of that trial, in the midst of that affliction. They allowed their trust in God's sovereignty, might, power, goodness to override fear, anxiety, and everything else. People of God saw that victory that day. See, friends, worship, there's lots said about it. Much ink has been spilled over the nature of worship, what it is, why we as the people of God engage in it. But one thing it is that's not often thought about is that it's a weapon. Worship is part of how we fight the good fight of faith. And it's particularly sharp. It's particularly effective when it is drawn out in times of suffering, affliction, and struggle, when it does not seem like that would be the right move. I told you guys a couple weeks ago that it it struck me in a way that had, and I had not connected all these dots yet, but if you go back to the beginning of Psalm 22, 
there was this phrase, and it, it rung my bell for some reason this time in a way that hadn't before, and now I get it. 22 verse 3, Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. You who are enthroned upon the praises of the people of God. Friends, part of why we, we should, in great faith and with, with great sense of security, be able to follow the example of our master here, who, as I just want to remind you, is in the midst of a crucifixion as these words of worship are being prayed and being thought through as he's declaring the greatness of God and looking forward to the work of his hands. I know we have real struggles, very severe, difficult things we are going through as a result of the the, the world being broken. Yes, and I'm not trying to minimize any of that. But again, we see Jesus doing us this, this, this incredible service of, Philippians talks about him being the highest, going the lowest. He for sure suffered the most. And yet, and yet declared with the greatest vibrancy God's worthiness to be worshipped in the very midst of the height of that suffering. And, and what does that mean? Why am I talking about us? This idea of God being enthroned upon the praises of his people because, friends, part of what happens when we struggle to do this, part of what happens when we struggle to worship in the midst of trial, affliction, discouragement, all the things that come, part of what it is, it is a dethroning of God in our hearts and minds. It is when fear and anxiety comes and creeps in, when we are, when we are tempted to, to run and to hide, when we are tempted to find other masters to serve because it doesn't seem like this one's doing what I want. All of those are dethroning, taking out in our hearts and minds, taking God off of that place of supreme and total sovereignty where he belongs. His enthronement it sits above every other throne and that's where it should stay. But if we're honest, it, it doesn't always in our hearts and minds. That's part of the very nature of what sin is. is following after, chasing after other lesser gods that make lots of promises that seem really nice. But friends, have we not tasted their promises enough to know that they're gravel in the end? We have, right? We know they can't keep their promises. There's one who keeps his promises. Only one. There's one who keeps his vows, as Christ said here. It's the one who's got the power to do it. It's the one that when he says something, he's got the backup to back it up. And so worshiping, friends, following the example of our Savior here, instead of in times of trouble, in times of discouragement, in times when we, we feel pressed from all sides, instead of, instead of crumbling into a ball and, and only, only whining and only whimpering, we stand up and we worship. Now let's keep in mind, that this psalm began with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so what we see here is this incredibly balanced, beautiful picture. It's not the lopsided kind of personality-driven, sometimes false dichotomies that get put in place because there are some people that that, they they very much understand what I'm talking about worshiping in in the midst of trouble and you know, a lot of times it would kind of fall under the nomenclature of just stay positive, say positive things, have positive confessions, don't, don't say negative stuff. But then on the other hand, you got people sometimes that they, they, they don't actually get the part about being able to worship in the midst of great trouble. It is just kind of a very Eeyore thing that gets on them and it's, it's, it's a very hyper focus on everything that's wrong and bad and broken without any ability to look at what is good and that God has this incredible ability to heal all that has been fractured by sin. What we see in this psalm is this progression. It's a permission to be honest about how we feel. Jesus himself utters the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because it sure felt like that. All his friends were gone. He's on the cross in our place. But notice It doesn't just stay in the realm of how it feels. He moves from the realm of how it feels to being able to walk by faith and not by sight. He's still, friends, hanging on the cross. He still has nails driven through his wrists and feet. And yet, 
He's going to declare God's name to his brethren. He's going to stand and keep his vows in the midst of the great assembly. He's thinking about how all the families of the earth are going to, they're going to bow the knee. They're going to declare that God is worthy of their worship. We can be honest. We can be raw. We can tell the truth about how it feels. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that what the Bible's calling you to is not fakeness? It's not put on a mask. It's not pretend nothing's wrong. That would not be honest, but the Bible's also not calling us to be pulled down into a vortex of only seeing what it feels like, only seeing what it looks like. We're called to follow in the way of our master who could see past what it looked like right in the moment. And you aren't him, I get that. You don't have perfect foresight, I get that. But what you do have is his word. What you do have is his faithfulness up till now. What you do have is a promise that he'll work all things for your good if you love him and are called according to his purpose. So by faith, though you may not be able to see the details of how this is going to go, how this is going to end up for God's glory, you can claim and know in absolute, utter confidence that it will. Because of his word, because of his faithfulness up till now. That's why you're not a total wackadoodle for worshiping in the midst of your struggle. I know it feels like it, and I know other people see it. Look, man, I was in it. Ooh, I touched the mic. Did you hear that? That was weird. Don't do that. Sorry. <laughs> I'll get lectured later. I, I already know. I messed up. You don't want to cross the sound guy. Now, here, I was in a hole recently, okay, digging, digging up a, a drain pipe, and the drain pipe was clogged, and you know what goes out drains of buildings, right? Not great. Okay, so, so the task is to get down in this five-foot deep hole, I got to cut through six-inch clay pipe, which is a hellacious process, just to say it mildly, okay? That is mildly. And so I got to cut into this thing. Everything that's in there is going to come out into the hole with me, and then I got to patch this pipe. That's the task. All right, and so I'm down there, and I get through, I, I, and, and it's, a, it's a mission, man, to just cut one side, get it, get it cut, and as soon as that blade goes down through the bottom of the thing, like I, like I said, dig a five-foot hole. These clay pipes are in five-foot sections, so it kind of comes, and then the next one has a hub, and that's how they go together. So as soon as I cut through that, this pipe that was half of it's visible in the hole, it drops. Boom. And so what that means, for those of you who aren't plumbers, is it now, I got to, in this hole now, full of everything that came out of the pipe, I get to dig by hand a little cave to try to get back in farther so that I can get to the next hub to get a clean cut to be able to repair this pipe. Now, let's just give everyone an opportunity to guess what word came out of my mouth when the pipe dropped. <laughs> Anyone want to guess? Anybody feeling bold today? This will really tell us what you think about me, won't it? Well, this, this, I'm just, this time, to the glory of God, I'm not going to say no other words crossed from the brainstem up to the front here, but the word that came out of my mouth, and, and someone walking by probably would have thought there was a madman in the hole. That pipe drop, there was, there was a 1.5 second delay, kind of a, and I said, hallelujah. <laughs> My buddy was joking, the guy that I'm doing the work for, you know, because he knew what I was about to get into. He said, I thought maybe I should just stand at the edge of the hole and read the Bible to you while you're in there. And I said, yeah, that probably would have been a good idea, my man. That's, that's, that's no credit to me. It's the spirit of God in me and it's, it's me. And thankfully I've been in these scriptures this week. Oh yeah. The poop, the poop hole pipe situation was this week, y'all. I'm in Psalm 22. I'm all pumped about coming to tell you about worshiping in the midst of your struggles. And I got to play in other people's excrement today or this week. And the pipe broke, man. They, oh man. It was the worst thing that could happen. That's kind of funny. The, all of you that laughed because I had other people's poop on me, I want you to repent during communion about it. Because <laughs> I can laugh about it, but you shouldn't. You should have just went, oh, so sorry. 
<laughs> no, it's all right. It's part of the gig. But here's my point. There, there is a reality to us being able to, by the power of the Spirit of God and through the exertion of, of, of discipline by the Spirit of God, to change the way we react to things and to change how we deal with trouble, what we allow our minds to do, what we allow our mouths to say. God is worthy of worship when you feel like things are going good and when you feel like they aren't. When the poop pipe breaks in your life, man. Whatever that means and whatever that looks like. Can you worship him? Because he's still good. That pipe ain't got no bearing whatsoever on the fact that my God is still enthroned upon the praises of his people. None at all. Being down in that hole, feeling like I may not get out of it, had no bearing whatsoever on the eternal goodness of my God and the fact that he's made me a brother to Christ, the King. And these little temporary things that can get us to dethrone God in our hearts and minds. How foolish. May he be enthroned continually in our praises as we walk by faith and not by sight. And here's the last thing I'm going to tell you about it, friends. I told you worship is a weapon. When we talk about, when we talk about God being enthroned upon our praises, in that, in that, baked into that cake, is submission. Because for me, with worship, to be intentionally enthroning God, and, and I'm doing it really in my mind and heart, okay? God doesn't need my permission to sit on his throne, you understand. He's there and not moving. But sometimes I need reminded. Sometimes in my own heart and mind, he needs to be rethroned. Sometimes, you know what I meant, like every minute of every day, right? You knew that. But in that, there is, there is baked into that an idea of submission. For me to enthrone God upon praises, for me to for me to offer praises that are a part of the very material upon which God's throne is built, I don't know. That's probably just poetic, but it's cool. The bricks that God's throne are made out of is the worship of his people. That's the way I'm thinking about it. Whoo. But for me to do that, there in that is this idea of submission. And we don't often think about how powerful of a weapon worship is. You understand the enemy hates what he hates it. And many people. They, they remember this verse, it's James 4, 7. It says, I'll hear people quote it, kind of, they think they're quoting it, and it's okay, it's, you know, whatever. We'll get the first half as well, that's what I'm gonna tell you. People, people oftentimes remember, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. That's, that's, I mean, that's a great truth, but that's a truth, it's one of those truths where if you got half of it, it's gonna get you hurt. It's like if you halfway know how to light a firework and not get your hand blown off, like, read all the instructions, like know what you're doing, right? Don't fool with that unless you really understand because the, the, that verse doesn't just say resist the devil and he'll flee from you because if you try to stand in your strength, if you try to stand in your little might and resist the devil, listen, man, he's been around longer than you, he's craftier than you, and you're, and you're probably gonna get chewed on like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The first part of the verse is submit yourself therefore to God and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You see, the devil is terrified of someone properly submitted to God. The devil is terrified of somebody who God has properly enthroned upon their heart and mind because what he understands is what he saw an incredible example of with Christ on the cross because if God is enthroned properly, no matter what he throws at them, he cannot win. That's the key. That's the bottom line. That is the anchor. That is the source of stability for any human being. You want to not be tossed to and fro by every wind of trouble. You want to not be beaten and battered by the difficulties of this life and the brokenness of this world. You want to stop feeling like you're always in the tumultuous winds of some storm. You want to feel like you've got somewhere to stand. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Enthrone him continually. How? Worship him. And I don't just mean, you don't, look man, you don't have to have Spotify to worship. Do you understand that? Nobody, and I'm not, there's nothing against, God absolutely built us and made music 
for, for the purpose of bringing him glory. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Please don't misunderstand me. I just want you to know that when the poop pipe cracked and I knew I was going to have to dig with my hands and all this stuff, nobody came out with a Bluetooth speaker and put on some Shane and Shane for me so I could get my head right. There was nobody there. I didn't have a chorus singing a hymn. So what I'm saying is, man, when, I talk, when I'm talking about worship, I just want you to broaden your idea. Worship can be simply you stopping and saying, God, you are worthy of my worship. Thank you. God, thank you for what you've done. God, thank you for being mighty and well able. Thank you for being able to do far more, exceedingly abundantly more than I could ever ask or think. You can just, you can just pray worship. You can just declare his great worth. You can just honor him. You can just thank him. But friends, when we do that, we enthrone him properly. When we do that, when he's enthroned, we're submitted. And when we're submitted, we actually have what it takes, the stability to stand and to resist the forces of darkness, our own stupidity, and everything else that would try to take us down. Hallelujah. I today am excited about an enthroned God, and I sure hope you am too. A throne that'll never be shaken. It won't be moved. It isn't... It, it, <laughs> His enthronement is not dependent on whether or not I'm thinking right about it. Woo! That means it's not dependent on you either, and I'm glad about it. It's not dependent on the detractors, the haters, the mockers, the scorners. Oh no, one day every knee's going to bow. Every tongue's going to confess. And friends, we have the great honor and privilege of letting as many people as possible know, while we have a chance, that they can stand on the side of being brothers and sisters, sons and daughters declaring with great joy that God is king over all. Amen. Thank God for his gospel. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, thank you for Psalm 22. Thank you for the heavenly vision that we see. Thank you that Christ, my king, was able in the midst of such immense suffering to turn his mind's eye and the meditations of his heart towards eternity, towards the implications of the price he was paying, towards the joy set before him, of which includes fools like me, undeserving ones like me. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, that we see prophecy fulfilled that there will be a posterity that serves you that continues to declare your great worth from generation to generation thank you that it's reached our generation that your faithfulness has proven true God I thank you that downstairs there's a bunch of children here right now the next generations being taught the truth of your gospel that there's hope in you being taught how to enthrone you in their hearts and minds and Lord, I know if you tarry, if you, if you don't come in time, then, then they will be teaching it to their children because you're faithful. Help us not to look at culture. Help us not to look at all that's shaking and to shake ourselves. Help us to stand stable. To keep you enthroned in our hearts and minds. To fill ourselves, Lord. With remembrance of your promises and that you've been true to all of them and you always will be. Thank you that you're not done fulfilling promises. Thank you that we're watching them unfold around us all the time. Sometimes we miss it, Lord. Sometimes our eyes, they are so much more finely tuned to pick up on, on useless noise and, and the junk and the brokenness around us. For some reason, we have a keen eye oftentimes for that, but we miss the faithfulness of your hands working all around us. Lord, help us fix our eyes and help us, Lord, even when we can't see, to walk by faith and not by sight because you're glorified in this and you are worthy of every last drop and ounce of that glory. We love you, Master. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give, 
or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.